0: You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Seed of the Woman is produced by the Gospel Story Art Project, using the science of story to better tell who Jesus is. It's your story, too. Hello, everyone. I'm Randall Gilmore. Since the podcast began, I've referred to one particular man who features prominently in Satan's counter story, the Seed of the Serpent, a man rising at the end of the age as the beast out of the sea to form a political, economic, and religious empire in association with the mystery of 666. Now, In this episode, I'm going to go deeper into this man's story. And I think you'll find this interesting, especially because, in all likelihood, this man, the man we're calling the seed of the serpent and the beast out of the sea, in all likelihood, this man is alive now, somewhere on earth, already involved in the issues of our day and plotting his next move. Now, before we get started, once again, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast. Seat of the Woman and the entire Gospel Story Arc Project are made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. I also want to invite you once again to download the PDF transcripts that go with each episode. Just $2 for the entire season, which goes toward our production costs. You can access the PDF transcripts through the link provided in the podcast description or through the Gospel Story Arc website gospelstoryarc.org. Follow the link at the top to the Seat of the Woman page. Again, that's gospelstoryarc.org, using the science of story to better tell who Jesus is, as we foster appreciative love for Jesus, and as we prepare ourselves and others for Jesus' return. The Gospel Story Arc Project, it's your story too. I'll take a quick break and return in just a moment. The beast out of the sea woke up early this morning with climate change on his mind. The idea that anyone might think of him as Revelation 13's beast out of the sea has never been something he's considered, but that doesn't mean he hasn't pondered his place in the world. I'm a man of influence, he thinks to himself, as he takes in the aroma of the breakfast his chef is preparing for him, pausing long enough to bask in the glory of his being wealthy enough to have so many others to attend to his daily needs. I'm a king without a country, he continues, and that's okay. I'm still a man of great influence. My empire extends for now for my natural talent to burst the bubble of anything that stands in my way, any corporation, any political party, or even an entire government. The beast out of the sea, whose actual name remains in the shadows, rises from his bed and walks across the room, tablet in hand, toward a comfortable chair where he can sit and read the latest on the Great Reset from the World Economic Forum. A summary of John Kerry's participation in a panel discussion sponsored by the forum catches his eye. Kerry promised the U.S. would rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Then he added that he was astonished at how many people in the U.S. didn't vote for it in the most recent election, but instead for, quote, the level of chaos and break of law and order, associated with national populism. The beast out of the sea could feel his heart racing as he read those words. On one hand, he felt gratified to hear someone like John Kerry express such contempt for nationalism. On the other, it seemed so obvious that the problem of nationalism was not going away anytime soon. World leaders like Kerry seemed powerless to do anything about it. And that's where I come in, he said out loud to himself. As his mind turned to the end of a recent interview, when he was asked about the role that religion might play in advancing the Great Reset and climate change agenda, the reporter seemed so impressed with his answers, offering a friendly parting shot as he was about to leave. You could be the Pope, he said. And without thinking, the beast out of the sea turned, looked over his shoulder and shot back. You've got that wrong, he said. I am the Pope's boss. Somewhere in the world today, there is a man entertaining thoughts, expressing opinions, and acting in ways consistent with everything I just portrayed. He is the man I've referred to throughout this podcast as the seed of the serpent and Revelation 13's beast out of the sea. The beast out of the sea becomes the seed of the serpent, when at the end of the age Satan gives him his power, his throne, and his great authority. I have to say that it's possible to understand the beast out of the sea, not just as a single individual, but also as a larger political, economic, and religious system. Many believe that's what Revelation 13 is talking about when it describes one of the heads of the beast suffering a mortal wound. The wounded head stands for a similarly styled political, economic, and religious system from much earlier in history, one that returns to make its impact on the world. Of course, every political, economic, and religious system is led by someone, or at least by some group of people in league with one another. And that takes us to Revelation 17 and 19, where we find additional references to the beast out of the sea, making it clear that the beast is not just a system, and not just a collection of people who lead and control the system. One person in particular, a person who functions as the system's representative and leader. So what is the historical antecedent for the system Revelation 13 calls the beast out of the sea? The system that was alive, but that suffered a mortal wound, a wound ultimately healed to the marvel of the world. And who was the political, economic, and religious leader that led that system? The one who best represents the beast as his historical forerunner? The answers, of course, are Babel and Nimrod. And this comes as no surprise if you've listened to previous episodes of Seed of the Woman. But it's time to pull back the curtain and show more of this connection. The most obvious place to begin is the special relationship between the beast out of the sea and Satan. It's a relationship born out of the beast's greatest weakness, namely, his inability to achieve his goals without Satan's power and throne and great authority. No matter how much power and influence the beast out of the sea thinks he has on his own, he comes to the point of realizing that he must join with Satan if he is to ever achieve his goals. But what exactly are the goals of the beast out of the sea and of the political, economic, and religious system he leads? For answers to these questions, we have to look no further than today's headlines. They're the goals of the Great Reset, world peace, a fourth industrial revolution, a thriving world economy that eliminates poverty and inequalities and bias of every kind, a sustainable environment, and a reversal of climate change. Now, these are lofty aims, not unlike Nimrod's goal to overcome the struggle of living in a cursed realm, cut off as he was from the blessings of restoration through the seed of the woman. But the real solution to the ills of Nimrod's world was not Nimrod's plan, but God's plan for restoration through the seed of the woman. So, as lofty as the goals of the beast out of the sea may sound, as we'll see, the devil really is in the details. Because to reach these goals, the beast out of the sea turns against God and his plan, against Jesus as the seed of the woman, and against those who believe in Jesus, and against Israel. Now, like the man featured in the story at the beginning of this segment, the beast out of the sea will show a measure of confidence in his ability to impose his will on the world. But it will also show disdain and contempt for anyone or anything that stands in his way, similar to the sentiment John Kerry actually did express in a panel discussion before the World Economic Forum. The beast out of the sea knows there are certain realities that hold him back for now. These include nationalism, international conflict, capitalism, religion. A form of the very same obstacles confronted Nimrod, by the way. The city-states listed in Genesis 10 that came under Nimrod's control, like the nations of today, would have naturally stood in conflict with each other over the limited resources needed to survive. And without those city-states yielding to the economic and religious interests of the collective, as Nimrod forced on them, the Tower of Babel would have never been built. So, too, the beast out of the sea will resolve to overcome the same intractable obstacles of nationalism, international conflict, capitalism, and religion. And this means overcoming the United States and Israel, along with people all over the world who have put their faith in Jesus as the seed of the woman. Now, I want to be quick to say that I'm not suggesting the United States is the central focus of Bible prophecy. It's not. But Israel is. And in the eyes of much of the world, Israel is the reason why world peace has eluded the planet. Meanwhile, the United States is the leader of all nations who side with Israel and Israel's quest for security in their land. The United States is also the homeland of many Christians, believers in Jesus who support Israel's right to exist. And to complicate things further for the beast out of the sea, the majority of U.S. citizens still reject for now the socialistic values of globalism, just as John Kerry lamented. And this brings us back to the Great Reset and climate change and the beast out of the sea. According to the UN, the World Economic Forum, and a host of other agencies and think tanks and governments, climate change is an existential threat to our existence on this planet, with no greater evidence required than the COVID-19 pandemic that recently swept across the globe the beast out of the sea will join this chorus, likely starting out as an academic attached initially to some think tank, perhaps someone also with the financial means to spread his influence, but definitely someone all in. Someone determined to secure the world's cooperation with the climate change agenda, someone literally hell-bent on transforming the political and religious landscape of the United States and on solving the problem of Israel one way or the other. But the beast out of the sea and all others of his ilk underestimate the resolve of those who refuse to embrace their worldview. The importance of our stewardship of the earth notwithstanding, we know the earth will never completely fall prey to any evil that the hearts of men might subject it to, including environmental ones. At the end of Genesis 8, right after the flood, God told Noah, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So nothing could be more clear. The continuity of Earth's climate is tied to the continuity of God's plan to restore all things someday through the seed of the woman. and With this in mind, God established the rainbow in Genesis 9 as an obvious, ongoing, and global symbol of his faithfulness to carry out his plan. When the beast out of the sea finishes reading the latest from the World Economic Forum, he sets down his tablet and rises to get ready for the day. First. That delicious breakfast his chef has prepared for him, then a series of Zoom meetings with people who hold leadership positions in his think tank. As he stands, his mind turns to ponder what must happen if he and his influence are to ever overcome the intractable resistance of nationalism, capitalism, and religion, not to mention also the fanatics so taken with Israel's right to exist. He tells himself, I want the world to live in freedom, And that means tolerating those who disagree. But if those who disagree won't listen to rational argument, what else is left but to subdue them by force? Once again, the beast out of the sea felt a rise in the pace of his heart, beating against the inner wall of his chest. Only this time he recognized its connection to the anger he felt toward religion, especially Christianity and Judaism. They are the most intolerant people on the planet, he said to himself. In the name of the only kind of tolerance that makes sense, we must stop tolerating them. The existence of Israel in their land, and the support of Christians for this, are especially troubling to those pursuing the Great Reset and its goals, because, as already mentioned, much of the international conflict that presently exists in the world centers on Israel's claim on Jerusalem and the rest of their land. Christians, by contrast, Recognize the role that Israel plays in the larger story of the seed of the woman. Back in Genesis 9, God indicated through Noah that the seed of the woman and his restoration would come through the family line of Shem. Many years later, God narrowed this line even further to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose sons became the forefathers of the nation of Israel. Of course, Jesus, the seed of the woman, did eventually come to the world through Israel. Specifically through the family line of David, who was of the family line of Judah, Jacob's fourth born son. But Jesus coming into the world wasn't the end of what God had in mind for Israel. According to Exodus 19, God also told Israel Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These words indicate that God also intended for Israel to be a mediator of the seed of the woman's blessings of restoration to the rest of the world. But for this to happen, Israel must continue to exist, something God ties once again to the continuity of the created order, just as He did in Genesis 8 and 9, but this time in Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. So God intends to keep the world in place, and Israel in place, until which time he fulfills his plan to solve the world's ills and restore all things through the seed of the woman, whom we know as Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. But the beast out of the sea rejects God's plan he refuses to submit or give any deference at all to solving the ills of the world through the seed of the woman, or in connection with the survival of Israel as a nation. And so, in his anger and his skewed perspective on tolerance, the beast out of the sea will war against God and Israel and against Christians as he attempts to make an end-time shem for himself and the world. But as already mentioned, To succeed, the beast out of the sea must turn to a source of power outside of himself. And this is where Satan enters with a ready-made solution, offering to transform the beast out of the sea into his seed, the seed of the serpent. Satan will offer his power, his throne, and his great authority in exchange for the beast agreeing to worship him and to make war against Israel and all who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. It's a similar solution to ones Satan previously set before Adam and Eve, and before Cain and Lamech, and then before Nimrod, as the most representative prototype of the seed of the serpent, who up till now has ever lived. The name Nimrod, remember, means let us rebel. Some Bible scholars believe that the name Nimrod isn't a name at all, but something called a dysphemism, which is the opposite of a euphemism. A dysphemism is a word or phrase substituted in to emphasize something much more negative and disparaging. So the name Nimrod may have been nothing more than a slur. Many of the same Bible scholars believe that the historical person called Nimrod is actually Gilgamesh, the famed hero of Sumer, which was the region over which Nimrod ruled. In the epic tale that bears his name, Gilgamesh journeys to find the God who was responsible for the flood and kill him. In the end, Gilgamesh claims to have succeeded, returning with God's head on a platter, bragging that he had liberated his subjects from the constraints of this God, freeing them to live as they pleased under his rule. And like Gilgamesh, the beast out of the sea, according to Revelation 13, also, opens his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. The beast out of the sea will claim that the God of the Bible is not who we think he is, that the Jewish and the Christian understanding of God is irrelevant, and that even if there were a God like the one that Jews and Christians believe in, he, the beast out of the sea, is more powerful. And also like Gilgamesh of old, the beast out of the sea will offer proof. If God really is so powerful, he will say, Where is his response to my so-called haughty and blasphemous words? And with this, he will make war on Israel and on the saints and conquer them. Now, it will appear to most of the world that the beast out of the sea has won. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The whole earth will say as they worship him, attaching to him a measure of success in his war against God, similar to that attached to Nimrod. When people called him a mighty hunter before the Lord. An epithet, according to many Bible scholars, that should read, the mighty vanquisher, not hunter, but mighty vanquisher of the Lord. Representing Nimrod's blasphemous claim that he had killed God, followed by his insistence that now everyone should honor him for it. In the end, Satan's offer to the beast out of the sea is reminiscent of the same offer Satan once made to Jesus. When he took Jesus to the top of a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to Jesus, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus refused, because unlike the beast out of the sea in Revelation, Jesus knew that all the kingdoms of the world and their glory already belonged to him as the seed of the woman, and that he already possessed all power in himself to do whatever was necessary to secure them. Therefore, Jesus had no need whatsoever of exchanging worship of the dragon for the power to take over the world. Now, in spite of the hatred that the beast out of the sea has for religion in general, and Judaism and Christianity in particular, Satan shows the beast another kind of religion, one that will prove useful for overcoming the obstacles and uniting the world under his control a religion that invokes the mystery of 666. But what else can be said about the religion that Satan offers? And what else does it have to do with Nimrod and his corruption at Babel? More next time on Seed of the Woman.